radical look at Scottish history with Stuart McHardy. Part 7, The Birth of Scotland, Part 2, Vikings. Now, just as we relied on Christian scribes for the story of the Scots coming in from Ulster around about 500, so our understanding of the Vikings has been significantly affected by the reports of attacks on Christian monasteries. The Irish annals give us the first historical mentions of the Norsemen, so again, we're reliant on material from outside of Scotland. However, one of the important points that the picture of the bloody rampaging Viking hordes effectively ignores is that, although the Vikings certainly were raiders, they were also traders. Now, the eruption of Viking raids from 790 onwards has been explained as a result of land hunger in Scandinavia caused either by population increase or maybe severe bad weather over an extended period. And certainly in the early years, there was nothing like organised national or colonial raids on Scotland. Though in later centuries, some of the raids in the north did become organised at a national level effectively and were led by kings. The last one being in 1263 when Hakon Hakonson brought a great fleet to try and reassert Norwegian authority over the Western Isles. And after being defeated at the Battle of Largs, he was forced to retreat. Now, that there had long been contact between the peoples of the British Isles and Scandinavia is absolutely clear, with amber having been imported at least as early as the Bronze Age. And according to DNA analysis, people had been coming in to what we now call Scotland from Scandinavia over 5,000 years ago. And there's ample archaeological evidence to show that contact between here, Scandinavia, and the low countries of Europe has been going on ever since. This suggests that there may well have been sporadic trading from Scandinavia to both east and west coasts of Scotland over millennia before the Vikings arrived. But when they did come, the Christian monasteries were prime targets for them, precisely because they had valuable materials like gold and silver, and also they generally had considerable stores of food. The earliest reports tell us that the monks were also unarmed, but in the light of what we've seen of the great St. Columba's behaviour in Ireland, leading to an actual battle, which took place if not between and definitely on behalf of different Christian houses, the idea of the peaceful or peace-loving monks and the bloodthirsty Vikings might need some revision. And it is perhaps worth remembering that Christianity, like all proselytizing religions, has a long history of organized and often brutal military activity against those that they consider to be heathens. And when Christianity eventually took hold in Scandinavia, it was at the point of a sword. We also have to be aware that early literature from Scandinavia does glory in what to us can appear extreme brutality, but this material is not contemporaneous with the earliest invasions and may itself be at least partly due to literary conventions of a later period. And as ever, reports we do have from the surviving Irish annals from much later are extremely brief. Now, the later stories of various saints having been martyred by the incoming Norsemen clearly fall into the pattern of hagiographical writing in general and have to be treated with caution. And the Norsemen were the Christian themselves. And though there is no evidence to suggest that they saw themselves on some kind of pagan crusade, 
They would have had no sympathy at all for the religious functionaries of a religion with a different god from themselves. Now, as I've said, in their pursuit of wealth, the Vikings were always keen traders, and in the founding of the Irish cities of Cork, Dublin, Limerick, Watford and Wexford, we can see the results of their more structured commercial activities. But they did not set up any cities in Scotland, though here there is no doubt that they merged with the local population to create what has become known as Gaul culture. This existed in both what we now think of as Ireland and Scotland, but from the 9th century onward there were also separate Viking-led groupings, generally referred to as kingdoms, and one of these was the Kingdom of the Isles, encompassing most of the islands from Harris in the north to the Isle of Man in the south. One way of understanding this is to see it as some kind of development of the earlier thalassocracy or sea-based society of Dalriada, and also as the precursor of the eventual lordship of the Isles, the rulers of which made a great deal of their own Norse descent. In many ways, this part of the world appears to have functioned for a very long time as a distinct society, separate from contemporary societies in both Ireland and Scotland, though with a physical existence in both areas and with very strong cultural links to the peoples of both. Later, Christian-dominated histories with an emphasis on the role of Columba and a consequent exaggeration of Irish influence have tended to obscure this. Now, the similarities in geography between the fjords of Norway and the sea lochs and islands of Scotland's west coast have given rise to societies where the use of sea travel was central to all communication. The similar seagoing warrior traditions of these societies can perhaps be seen as providing a platform for the integration eventually took place on the west coast and in the Hebrides. Now, Viking raids also took place on Scotland's east coast from the turn of the 9th century, though they do not seem to have been followed by extensive settlement or integration with the locals, maybe because the terrain was so different from Scandinavia. Some suggestions have been made that the peoples of Scandinavia first learned the arts of sailing from visitors who had come from somewhere in northern Britain, and the similarities between the Viking longships and the smaller birlings of the West Coast edition are quite striking and needs to be looked at in more depth. It is also the case that it was extensive Norse settlement and integration in what is now Galloway, its very name reflecting that heritage, and from there into the glens running north and east from the Solway Firth. Now, throughout the 8th and 9th centuries, there were struggles amongst the Vikings with the Dugal, or Norwegians, often at odds with the Fingal, or Danes. And although the early raids seemed to have been separate ventures, at times the Norsemen did band together to try and achieve something on a much larger scale. In 902, for instance, a major force of Vikings from Dublin, led by Ivor the Younger, sailed up the Tay to attack Dunkeld. Now, this was the site of a major cathedral that had been put up almost a century earlier by Constantine. Now, the invaders were eventually defeated in 903 in a major battle in Strathern, but if they had been successful in conquering such an important site in the very heart of the country, we can only imagine how Scotland would have developed. The struggles with the Norsemen continued for many centuries, and it wasn't until the Battle of Largs, already mentioned, that the last great Norse military force was seen. The legacy of Norse involvement can also be seen as crucial in the rise of the Lordship of the Isles, and it wasn't until the end of the 15th century that the Macdonald Lords of the Isles and their territories were effectively brought under Scottish control after defeat 
by James IV. Now, material from the oral tradition reflects the remarkable level of integration between the Norse and the Gaels from the 9th century onwards, and it is notable that in many West Coast Scottish clans, they're claiming their descent from Norsemen. And it is one of the irrefutable but often forgotten aspects of our nation's history that much of the Hebrides, Sutherland, are the Northern Isles were effectively under the nominal control of Norwegian kings up till the 15th century. This suggests that the very idea of the Celtic West may itself be a rewriting of the past. Now, the Northern Isles of Orkney and Shetland remained under Norwegian control till they were handed over in 1472. Though remnants of the local North Germanic language, Norn, that it is thought had developed there in the first millennium, didn't die out till the 19th century. And whether it was spoken by some sections of Viking and Galgale society is one of those intriguing historical questions we will likely never find an answer to. However, the continuing existence of Norn into the modern period underlines just how significant a role that people from Scandinavia have played in the development of Scotland as we know it. A range of place names from the Northern Isles to the borders reflect the cultural importance of our cousins from Scandinavia, and I would go so far as to say that there are good grounds for saying that culturally we have long been part of a Celto-Germanic world. Next time, part eight, the birth of Scotland. Three. <laughs>